On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we have a Sloan recap, and then we interview Captain Jack Andrews and talk about the value of sharp money in the gambling ecosystem. And we also talk about, what are we talking about? We talk about sharps, blah, blah, blah. And we talk a lot about Sloan and the panel that I moderated. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a tout with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast. This is the post Sloan episode where uh, we talk about everything that happened to us at MIT. And we also later talked to Captain Jack Andrews, who I think that's his stripper name and he won't tell me his real name, which is sad, but Rufus says he knows it, which, and Rufus won't share it with me. So again, all this is just not, it's not nice. I wish people would clue me in on what's going on. I don't know so why Rufus, he's Andrews. How, he should be Jack Sparrow. That how was your, how was, how was Sloan for you? It was fun. I, you know, saw a lot of people I wanted to see. Probably drank too much because that's, you know, I saw most of these people at at bars or restaurants. And yeah, it was it was a it was a fantastic time. And I got to see my hero, Jeff Ma, moderate a panel on sports betting. Like, what could be cooler than that? So, how did your hero do as a moderator? I thought he did pretty well. He, uh, you know, I honestly didn't think the panel the the panelists were the most exciting i mean i think that they chose panelists that were very much sort of in the business like business people not betters i mean you had people from two different sports books you had like data partners and and you didn't really have and and you had you know and doug right doug uh, from espn so you didn't really have I, i didn't think there was sort of the diversity of of guests like you know when you moderated the panel back in i don't know what it was like it was six or seven years ago and you had Matt Holt from Cantor on, and also Haraldus Vulgaris, and and you know there were tweets back and forth about beforehand, um, you know where because Matt claimed that he would take, you know, he would take huge bets, and then Bob called him out on it during the panel, and that there was some fireworks, and we didn't really get that there, but I thought that you know I thought that you asked some good questions, and you know I know that people think that you took it easy on on um, the William Hill person Sharon Otterman but you know I think that you know you're also trying to you know you're not it's 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 hard to I don't know I think it's hard in that role yeah it's it's hard and and the, the reality is you know the, the reason why that panel was you know configured why why it was made up of those people right money no those are sponsors yeah, anyway. like most of those people were sponsors and they exactly. wanted to be on that panel and you money. know this was a, yeah for it is money but like it's not like oh they were like you know, juicing Daryl Morey to, to get on Jessica Gelman to get on it. They were just, you know, they were, they were there because that was sort of the, you know, the, 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 the conference is definitely very sponsor driven and, you know, that's why they're able to do the things that they do, which is, which is super cool. But yeah, I mean, I think that there was a world where we could add better people. I mean, just having five people on a panel itself, in addition to a moderator is not a recipe for success, right? There's just too many people like all trying to grab time and talk. From my perspective, I thought the panel was okay. And 
you know, I had a moment in time where I looked over at Sharon Otterman and I looked at myself and I was like, man, I could just keep going on this forever. But it's not really going to be very productive for myself or for Sharon or for anyone because, you know, there's not like an, we're going to get to an answer here. It's not like all of a sudden she's like, yeah, okay, fine. We, we really ban all, all sharps or whatnot. So I tried to push it as far as I could without like completely alienating her and, and, and the entire panel at that point. Cause I have a job to do, which is to moderate the panel as best as I can. So yeah. that's kind of my stance on it, you know, yeah. but what else happened at Sloan? Anything else that you enjoyed? Was there anything fun for you? Yeah, there was. I mean, I think I think it was fun. I went to a uh, Google Analytics hangout the day before, which was which was really interesting, and saw some cool some cool talks. I you know I think I saw a total of I saw the sports betting panel. I saw one half of Ted Knutson's panel with Daryl Morey on soccer, which was quite interesting and funny. And I'm glad that they talked about the pass back to the goalie, which. Daryl Morey thinks is the worst play in soccer without any data and and Ted vehemently disagrees but I got up in the middle and made a fool of myself because I had to leave when I saw that there was actually a golf paper in the research paper area so I had to catch that of course and you know it turns out it was a giant waste of time which actually was the best possible outcome for me but yeah, I, Sloan, the thing with Sloan is that it's basically, it's about the networking and, and meeting people and, and relationships and all that. I mean, what do you think, Jeff? I mean, you've you've been a key part of Sloan for a decade at least, I think, right? Do you think that there's information to be gleaned from these panels or do you think the benefit to attending is more sort of on the interpersonal side? I, you know, I, I think the trouble with the panels is they've, there's, you know, sponsorship, there's star power, and there's just a lot of people that have a lot of reasons not to say things on the panels, i.e. like if you work for a team, you're not going to give up secrets. And, and even like the, the interview that we just did with Kevin Jack, it was it was good. You're going to hear it. But I, I wish that he was willing to talk about more trade secrets and he wasn't really willing to talk about that. So anytime you have someone who's not going to do that, you don't have compelling content. Now, I, I think the thing that's amazing about Sloan is just the ma- amount of star power that comes and that attends. And like, if you are lucky enough to be a speaker or have someone smuggle you into the speaker room, like, like I did for you, you get to hang out with like these incredibly, you know, I, I was uh, talking to David Epstein, the guy that wrote the sport gene. And I was bitching to him about Malcolm Gladwell and how hacky he is. And then two minutes later, yes. Malcolm Gladwell came into the room and gave him a big hug. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of awkward. But, you know, generally, like, I, I, it's it's an amazing, like, I, I made a big effort to get there just for one day because it, it is such a special occasion. And obviously, there's the dinner that I hosted, you know, on Saturday night, which really became just this incredible dinner with just some of the most important people in sports analytics there, which was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was. Am I allowed to name drop the people or no? Yeah, of course. I mean, no, I, don't, I, mean, I don't think anyone I, has it. No, I mean... Yeah, there was there was a ton of, st- of star power. I got to meet my hero, Michael Lewis, who the funny thing is he actually, he was like, oh, you're Lizzie's brother. You know, my, my sister is an audio producer and, and is doing some work with him. So I thought that was that was super cool. But yeah, I, I met Nate Silver. I met uh, Mike Leach was definitely super fascinating. He, he talked for like, I, I, I got a lot of insight into how he thinks. Like I talked with him for like an hour and he just he just goes on and it's great. So yeah, he was pretty he was pretty fascinating and just like a down home guy, like not a not pretentious or anything like that. So and then obviously our, our good pal Ted Knutson was there and, and it's always great to see him. 
Yeah, Ted. Ted's good. Ted talked about the whole thing on his podcast this week. I don't know if you caught that, but it was it was. Uh, he made fun of me because he had told me previously that I had one job, and that was to take photos of him with these stars, so that because he <laughs> is he is non unapologetic about how starstruck he is by these nerds, and I use that nerd as a ter- nerds as a term of endearment there. And he wanted me to take photos, and I didn't do it. And so he was he was bitching to me that that uh that i should have done that so you're too busy playing playing good host i was i was trying to do my best to take to 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 be a good host so anywho all right well let's let's welcome in captain jack and we'll start that interview now now we welcome in captain jack who rufus wanted to have on i have no idea who this guy is just kidding rufus why don't you give him an intro that's a little nicer than that so Captain Jackie Andrews, I actually met him over, I guess it was before the Super Bowl. He, but I knew him from Twitter far before that. He's a professional gambler in New Jersey. He's a blogger for Gambling with an Edge. And Captain someone, Jack, do you think Rufus is reading right now? It seems like he's reading. It's fine so far to me. I actually am not reading, but he's, he's someone who has his finger on the pulse of the sports betting industry in New Jersey. And I would say in the rest of the country too, in the rest of the United States. So Captain Jack, welcome. Thank you, guys. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. I'm going to do what I do when I'm in a strip club also. So what's your real name, not your podcast name? Jack Andrews is what we're going to go by today. <laughs> that's the answer I also get in the strip club, too. So that's that's not <laughs> uncommon. That's good to hear. So what? Um, we're going to start with the article that you wrote, which I thought was super interesting. But obviously, people who listen to our podcast probably don't know it. So tell us a little bit about what you were writing in terms of the value of sort of sharp money, which is something that we talk about a lot on this show and, and this sort of pinnacle model, et cetera. But you wrote an article about the value of sharp money in the ecosystem of sports betting. So give us a 30-second synopsis of what that article was about. Yeah, so this article came about, I was actually contacted by a site and they wanted an article that was coming from the mind of a, of a professional better uh, regarding how sports books treat sharp sports betters. Uh, and rather than go down that path of, you know, we get kicked out all the time and they won't take our action, I decided to actually take it from the angle of what benefit do we provide in the sports wagering economy, so to speak. And uh, that article is actually very tough to write because my target audience was betters, but I knew it was going to get some industry eyes as well. So I wanted to kind of talk past the betters and talk to the industry guys that might be looking at the article that, you know, just plant a seed in their head. I know it's falling on deaf ears, most of it, but I wanted to plant the seed in their head that, hey, there's a benefit to sharp money. It's predictive. It can tell you which way the market's going. Uh, sharp money is self-leveling. It it plays a number and not a narrative. You you guys have taught everyone that. Uh, and it also, it's it's the right thing to do. You know, if, if you're if you're promising the world that you're going to take on all comers for you to then restrict certain action is, is just unfair to the market. Uh, especially when a lot of these guys are, are guys that are just putting in the time. They're just putting in a lot of effort and brain power and analytics to come up with a way to beat a line. And uh, you know, for you not to take their action, it just seems a little unfair to the mass public. So if that's the case, why do you think these books like if, if it was so profitable for books to take sharp action, why aren't there any books out there in the United States doing it? And why are there so few books globally to do that? But, but Rufus, stop for a second. It's not profitable 
to take sharp action, right? Well, well, I mean, we heard on the panel like that I talked about where the mar the the hold percentage for Penny was like less than one percent compared to the hold percentage of like these non sharp action taking books, which is close to four percent. So it, it's not profitable to start with. It's it's or not comparatively, right? You have to get high volume to get there. So are you are you saying that that Jack's points are, are invalid here? I don't think they're invalid. I just think they're they're a little bit of a stretch, right? It's it's basically like me saying that they should have just let me count cards, right? Like mm-hmm. they should have let me count cards because it's un-American for them not to let me, but they don't actually care because they're running a business. Right. So and you know, to your point, Jeff, I agree. And I, I see that there's a whole spectrum of interest when it comes to sharp money here. It it's and it's not profitable if you're only booking sharp money. However, if you're using sharp money to uh, balance out your positions, and I, and again, you know, whenever we get into a situation where we, somebody talks about bookmakers don't try to lo- to balance the action, they're fine taking positions because in the end, you know, they're they're booking at eleven to ten, and and the vig will win out in the end. The point is, in a lot of these emerging markets right now. Everyone's looking at the handle. You know, every month New Jersey comes out with their numbers, and boom, the headline is: "Look at this handle. Look at this three hundred eighty-five million dollars last month." Sharp money can contribute to that handle. It can smooth out the bumps. It can create a more predictable monthly revenue. You know, we're, I'm not talking about just sharp money and sharp money only. I'm talking about sharp money being part of the equation. Uh, someone on Twitter said that you know. They think sharp money should account for no more than ten percent of uh, total handle. That's that's a it's an interesting place to start in the discussion. I've actually expected that article to get more pushback from a lot of these industry guys, especially the European guys. I kind of took a little jab at them there with saying that you know this this method of kicking out sharps is kind of the European method, whereas the American method is is yet to be formed. And I I think you know I I kind of expected to get some pushback and. Uh, so far, I haven't, but I'm I'm all for it. You know, let's start this discussion because there is a middle ground to be found somewhere here. Well, do you think you know the the necessity of of books taking on sharp action, or, or do you think that that model can be profitable just because there aren't other books doing it? Really, basically, there we, isn't we, really. We need we need to stop saying profitable though, because again, well, it's a di- Jeff. What I, I'm talking about it is a sort of a different business model here. And it's think- for sure a different business model, and, and and both of them can be profitable. Now the question is, and ultimately, like it, it's and, and I'm taking dev- the devil's advocate here. Otherwise, this can be a very boring podcast, right? We're all going to agree, and it's going to be like kumbaya. But you know, I, I read Jack your article, and and I, you know, I I think I'm generally agree with your points, but also they're they're very idealistic in a world mm-hmm. where you're approaching it as a professional better who believes that they should have the opportunity to bet because it's their right but it becomes a whole different type of of you know business if you allow, allow sharp betters right that that's the whole point it does and i think to rufus's point is not so much profitable but uh, what what about predictive you know our sharp betters well, why do i the give curve? a shit if it's predictive if i'm a bookmaker i just want to make as much money as i can because when you're reactive in your business model you're you're constantly behind the curve. You're you're constantly 
uh, following the screen. And, you know, and one of the points I made in the article is the screen can be manipulated. It is being manipulated. You know, a lot of these books, they don't so much hate the sharp action. They hate the steam action because they they fear the steam action. They fear that they're going to get caught with their pants down. If, if you're open to, mod, you know, modeling your sharps and figuring out what they're doing and how they're doing it, then you're going to be ahead of the steam. In fact, you're going to be steam proof. That's the sort of, that's the edge here. It's, it's not profitable, but it's a, it's a business edge. And, it, and I, I realize it doesn't appeal to all bookmakers. It doesn't appeal to a lot of retail bookmakers. It probably appeals to the bookmakers that are going to try to operate on thinner margins in order to get more of the market share, i.e. the pinnacle model. Got it. So tell tell me a little bit about like yourself. Like I'm I'm interested. Like how did you be, get into sports betting itself? Uh, I've I've been an advantage player for about 20 years. I started with with card counting, moved on to other games in the casino, moved on to online casinos back around the early 2000s, and that segued into online sports books. And then when online casinos basically went away for a while, I kind of migrated into sports betting solely. Developed some quantitative uh, processes for various sports. And it is just kind of churned and churned and grinded it out over the years. And then, you know, being in New Jersey, when legalization started to become a reality, and I'm talking back in like 2011, when it looked like things could happen, I I got more and more interested in the industry as well as in the the fight for legalization and regulation. Uh, And that's when I started to take a harder look at the industry as a whole uh, as it applies to both New Jersey and then to these other states. So that's kind of where my target is right now. I still bet a lot of sports, but I also have kind of, uh, as Rufus said, I've, I've tried to keep my finger on the pulse of how this industry is uh, evolving and developing. What sports do you bet primarily and, and where do you feel like you get your edge? Are you an analytics guy or? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely a quantitative better. I bet the NBA and I bet Major League Baseball, as well as the NFL and, you know, other things that might pop up on the screen and things, you know, basically anyone who's trying to get an edge is is following the same recipe. But my quantitative analysis is is uh, basketball and baseball. Got it. Nice. Griffith, do you have questions? I don't want to dominate the conversation. <laughs> no, it's OK, Jeff. OK, so when, when you think about, you know, where you get an edge and things like that, you know, you said like just like other, every other advantage player is. But I mean, I think most of the people that listen to our podcast are probably trying to figure out how to get an edge. So what advice would you give to someone who's trying to look to get an edge? And can you give like specific examples of, of areas or places or things that, that, that you've been able to get an edge in? You know, actually, I and I'm I'm not just kissing ass here, but your podcast is one of the best places to formulate getting an edge. Uh, oh God, that's awful, Jeff. We're not doing this right. <laughs> but it's true. It's and you have far more than seven listeners. I'll tell you that. I I have at least ten people that I'm in constant contact with that all download the podcast on the first day. But the point of it is, is you talk about playing numbers instead of narratives. You talk about uh, developing a process for uh, beating sports. And, uh, you know, just like Rufus isn't going to disclose his secret sauce on this podcast, uh, you know, I'm not going to either. But I will say that there is a definite course of action that you can take. And it's not a course of action. It's a, it's a course of thinking to develop yourself into either a quantitative better or a qualitative better. And for people that are coming at it largely from other backgrounds in terms of uh, being an advantage player, who maybe don't have the understanding of sports that you need to become a qualitative better, the quantitative angle is the far easier path. So I, I think your original question was, you know, what processes do I use? Well, 
I use a lot of uh, looking at statistics, scraping statistics, running regression analysis on different angles to find which ones correlate with uh, actual results, back testing theories. Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of the same thing over and over again. It's rinse and repeat. And, you know, I, I think a lot of your listeners probably can associate with that in how they approach different sports as well. And if they can associate with it, that's kind of a clue as to here's a, here's a pathway to take. So in, go ahead, Rufus. No, I was going to say, I mean, I think the common thread of this, like, is just a sort of a logical reasoning and being able to think through things in a certain way. And I think I'm, ge- I'm guessing your, your experience sort of in the AP world probably helped you get there in sports betting. Right. So, you know, I tell a lot of AP people is that advantage ask, player for everyone listening, right? I tell a lot of people that, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like the scientific method that you learned in elementary school. The first step was hypothesis and then developing testing. And, uh, you know, I actually don't remember what the actual steps of the scientific method were, <laughs> but I, I do remember it begins with hypothesis. And that's sort of, that's sort of where it all starts is you look at something, you go, hmm, I wonder if this is significant. I wonder if this would be a a good angle to try. And then you develop, you know, formulas and and regression analysis and tests to decide if this is a viable angle. And you, you know, in the end, it ends with, uh, you know, scientific proof or fact or whatever it was. I probably should have looked up those conclusions before I conclusion whatever it is but <laughs> but see that's the thing you're you're going way back to your earliest thoughts of of how you developed logical thinking and you're applying it to sports betting uh, you know it's i think it's a foolproof method in in my opinion as long as you actually have a good hypothesis right true as long as you're willing to at some point say to yourself oh no this doesn't work because okay. so you, so nine out of ten don't work so here's here's one, okay. You so I like this idea, right? So let's say you go, okay, there's there's some theory that, you know, turnovers are overrated or whatever. You run some regression, you figure that out, like you find some hole that you can exploit by building a model that leverages that. Theoretically, the market becomes more efficient over time, right? Like markets tend towards efficiency. I think this guy that I know says that all the time. When that happens, and let's say that your model, because I'm sure there's times that your model starts to like not work as well. How quickly do you change and try to reevaluate or, you know, like basically this is this is the first chapter of the new book that I'm writing, right? Which is about how the world isn't necessarily like Blackjack. And it's going to be, I think the name of the chapter is going to be something like, when do you not trust the process or something like that? Probably something a little bit more eloquent than that. But that would be my question to you. So when do you not trust the process? Yeah. And and that's a great point, Jeff, because I don't know of anyone who is able to have the foresight to know when the, when the process is, is stopping, when the market is too, too efficient. I was actually telling some people the other day that nobody's doing what they were doing five years ago when it comes to being on the cutting edge of, of sports betting. All, all these angles, the, the market tends towards efficiency. And, and you know what I was doing five, 10 years ago, I'm not doing anymore. I'm not exactly going to say it, what I was doing just in case it all circles back around. But the point being is that's a, that's, that's a common problem for everyone that you know knowing when your edge is up I do a lot of binomial testing on my results just to see, you know, how far away from random my results are. I I tend to, at the end of every season, look back at the season and try to figure out where things were different. I try to track things 
over the course of a season so that I can identify points in the season where something might have changed. There's a school of thought out there that the same angle doesn't beat an entire season of a sport. It's it's kind of a controversial topic because I don't I know not everyone would agree with that, but there's there's ways to approach the NFL in week one through four that don't work in weeks twelve through seventeen. Same thing with the NBA. There's the NBA season is it follows a weird curve. And one of the points that a lot of people have trouble with is right after the all-star break uh, position yeah. we're in now. <laughs> um, baseball's baseball's very similar. There, baseball is, is totally wacky. You know, it's, it's played from April to October. And, and if you look at the conditions that baseball is played in, in that span, it's, it's widely ranging. And, and so a lot of people find their spots in the baseball season where, the thing that they're approaching it with isn't what gets the money at certain points of the season. Yeah, I, I, think, I know. Sorry, sorry I know. I know what I was saying is, is sort of ambiguous, but I kind of wanted to keep it ambiguous because I I don't think it be- benefits anyone to spoon feed them. But if by kind of giving clues like that, people start to approach things and and look into it for themselves, I, I think that benefits everyone. So, have you figured out how to beat baseball in July? Because I certainly haven't. No, uh, Flag Day is the point of my season where usually where I just go, okay, I'm done for a while. And then I circle back sometime in uh, September. Late August to September. I, I do the same thing. I've, I tried for so many years to figure out how to win in July. And, and I haven't had a winning July either in back testing the model or during the actual season. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's very frustrating, but you know what? Everybody needs a vacation, right? Right. Uh, you know, the irony of it all is uh, every year for Father's Day, MLB.tv sells the rest of their season for $49, which is a great deal considering how much of the season is left uh, around Father's Day. But that's also the point where I pretty much stop betting. So it's, <laughs> it's frustrating to say, oh, I, you know, I could have waited till now to buy this, this uh, you know, the watch all the games at once uh, program. But that's also the point where I'm pretty much turning off baseball for a couple of months. And Jeff, uh, you know, I didn't get a chance to comment on this, but I think we've haven't we already had like a book to, talking about blackjack and relating it to business from you? No, but the point is, it's going to be the opposite of the original one, right? The Still original one, blackjack, though. It's going to be about how the other one was wrong and how you. It's not going to say it's wrong, but it's basically, basically like the thing about blackjack that's interesting is that it's sort of this perfect petri dish, right? It's a pl- completely closed system where. You can say like, hey, always trust the process or you can say like, hey, you know, no, don't ignore short term results or like look long term. But like the the real world isn't like that. And so many of these questions around, you know, like how do you you know evaluate a process in short term when the short term results are bad? And like when do you decide that like maybe I need to change my model or reevaluate my model? That's a really hard question, and it's really important for the next phase of what happens. And it's it's a it's actually a much more interesting topic than just talking about how you know the lessons you can learn from blackjack. Because hopefully, at this point, everyone has learned those that's that's involved with with data. Well, I think I mean we talked about this extensively on on our last podcast. You know, the closed system versus open system stuff. So I, I think let's. Um, what do you guys think about moving on towards uh, the discussion of of the sports betting panel at Sloan? Sure. You guys can attack me for um, being too nice to Sharon Otterman. So for those of you who haven't seen this or heard about it, Jeff was the moderator and a very good moderator at that, at least according to me, uh, mm-hmm. of the of the sports betting panel at Sloan, uh, the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, which was last last weekend, I guess. Yeah. 
in Boston. And one of the guests was Sharon Otterman. Did I say her name right? I, I, yeah, yes. I don't think that I don't think that that's that complicated a name to well, say. I wasn't. So yes, I, think I, I don't said it right. remember. I, I didn't remember the last name exactly. I was like, is it Othman or Otterman? But uh, she's she is well. She works at William Hill. I forget what her actual title is, but she's the CMO. Of CMO, Chief Marketing Officer. As far as you know, yes. No, what is it? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yes, it's the Chief Marketing Officer. Okay. <laughs> hey, I'm I'm not in the corporate world like you are, Jeff. But I wish we could uh, edit this all out, but we can't because it's too funny. Anyway, she she said Jeff pushed pushed her about whether William Hill takes bets from or is willing to take bets from winning betters and she said that they you know because there was this rumor that they that they don't take bets from winning betters they kick those betters out and and she said that William Hill was the victim of of bad publicity and you know call, she called herself the victim and called their company the victim and basically said that they don't kick out betters for just for winning. There's always other things and Jeff followed up and she kind of dodged the question like a good politician. And some people on Twitter were a little bit annoyed that Jeff didn't press harder. Did you, Jack, did you happen to see this? Oh yeah, definitely. I saw it. You know, I felt a little bit bad for her because it was clear, like she's fairly new to William Hill. I think she was hired in like around July. She came over from MSG. It is clear they threw her at the wolves here. They, they knew they were going to face a tough audience and they said, all right, you're the newest person in the door. You go do the Sloan conference because, but at the same time, well, I actually think, I also think she had like plausible deniability because I, I, I like people that gave me crap about this. I, I legitimately don't think that she believes that they throw out winning betters. Like I, I, I talked to her afterwards and I was like, why don't you just, why don't you guys just come clean and just say like, Hey, we deal we're not a book that wants to deal with the pros. We want recreational betters and that's just it. You know, it's just that simple. And like, this is our prerogative. We run a business and we can do it however we want. Jeff, she's she a marketing like, no. officer. What's that? The ch- she's the chief marketing officer. She knows how to control. Did you go narrative. look up CMO? Is that what happened in this interim? I'm just trusting you here, but you know, she obviously got to that position for a reason. She understands how to, how to be believable and, and sell things. I, Honestly, like, I swear to God, I think that she doesn't, she doesn't know. Like, she was like, I went and I talked to like our trading department and I asked them and they taught, told me specific things. Now, if I had said on the panel, like, oh, my buddy Rufus from the, from the podcast, he's like 100% banned at William Hill and, and he's not like, he does, he's not, you know, I'm not chasing steam on I'm not doing or like- he's not like, he's just a legitimate better and you guys banned him. So he's a perfect example of it. She would probably say something like, well, we might have made a mistake in that case and you know whatever you should have done that jeff then i might have gotten reinstated do you really that want to bet at william hill i would love really to bet at william hill okay no well let's 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 see what we can, why don't we get nick bogdanovich on on the well, podcast nick, and talk I, i've golfed with nick it's not his decision that's the problem well so he might come on and just admit that this is the case and say it's not my decision like it's it's clear that he said that to a bunch of people a bunch of people have said like oh yeah nick said it's not his decision yeah so Jack, I thought, are you able to bet at William Hill? You know, <laughs> I actually am. I, I, I've well, do we get to take your sharp card away then? If that's well, the case? no. See, yeah, see, that's why I didn't want to admit that. But it, here's here's the thing: they, I think they've had a sort of a paradigm shift in their thinking as they came to New Jersey, because New Jersey came right out in the beginning. the The director of uh, gaming enforcement, uh, David Rebuck, basically said. That's not the way it's gonna it's gonna work here. You're not allowed to boot people just because they win. You know we have rules against that, and I I have a feeling they've taken a, a hands off approach in New Jersey. Now I do know of people that have been 
uh, backed off in New Jersey from William Hill, but it's always hidden behind some other reasoning. So, you know, I think that's the way they kind of play around with it here. But but the, wait, that doesn't solve the problem of people being limited to bet sizes that make it not worth their time. Right. And that's what I think ultimately William Hill is going to do as well. They're going to they're going to cut the limits down a la how DraftKings operates in New Jersey, how MGM operates in New Jersey. They're not going to just turn off your account like they do in Nevada. Just just uh, for the record, that's that's the same case with card counting in New Jersey. Also, they're not allowed to correct. refuse service to anyone, but they can just make it so you can do no Michoud entry or you can't change your bed or you can get you know small limits or whatever. So it's it's consistent with how they treat card counters. Correct. Yeah. And I think they took that same approach. You know, my point back to to Sharon Otterman is she did a little disservice to not not sports bettors, but but journalists like David Purdom put a lot of work into that article. I know because I had several conversations with him leading up to it. Rufus probably did as well. That wasn't bad publicity. That wasn't fake news. That was a well-researched article on a mainstream website like ESPN. You know, that's not bad publicity. That's not a that's not a hit piece out on you. You know, that's just that's just journalism. So, I, you know, you can't you can't call that plausible deniability. Yeah, it kind of just insulted our intelligence. huh? Their co- More or less. Comments. Yeah. Yeah. So. So anyways, so back to the panel. <laughs> OK, I mean, like the, the, the issue, honestly, this comes back down to a certain thing. Like if they want to run their book a certain way, that's their prerogative, isn't it? Yes. And, and I, so, I you know, I, I personally don't like it because I'm a better and I would like to bet there, but I, I understand the business model. I just don't want to have my ins- intelligence insulted and, and you, you know, you got to call a spade a spade, right? Yeah, I, I suppose. But I, I guess it's just like an interesting thing because again, if you go back to the, you know, the, the, the um, analogy around uh, card counting, right. It's a similar situation where, we just had to like learn to deal with it. Right. It it is what it is at that point. Like they, they get to refuse service to anyone they want and and you kind of have to deal with it. So that's, that's just kind of how I think about it. Also related to card counting. What is the damage to the bottom line of a card counter? You know, one person card counter does not make a dent into even a, a table's drop for a shift. However, you know, one sport sharp sports better probably doesn't make a dent into the the drop for a a sports book you know if they were to encourage only sharp betters then yeah they would have a, a business uh, dilemma there but they're getting plenty of square action or sorry public action they're getting plenty of massive public action you know and not not just them but like DraftKings in New Jersey they're taking 53,000 bets a day yet they can't take any sharp action whatsoever you know they they they've been the most aggressive at cutting down uh the limits for sharp betters you know right, there's fifty three thousand bets are, are like twenty dollar parlays mostly so and that's i mean if you if you look that's at fine. the i mean i mean i i know from like looking at, at nevada gaming reports back you know i think this was years ago i remember finding out that i accounted for over one percent of the of the handle for nevada in the super bowl like and i'm just one guy so i think if you're betting if you're betting more you can certainly do damage. And, and I mean, look at Pinnacle, right? Pinnacle doesn't hold that much. I mean, they do have lower margins overall, but, you know, they are taking the majority of their money or their, their action is, is well, the majority of the money coming in is at least semi-sharp, I would say. Is it, am I wrong in there? No, I, I believe you're right. And I'm not saying that, you know, allow me to bet 
$100,000 a game, but allow me to bet 500, 1,000, something that's at least respectful, you know? It's it's something that says, okay, you know, you're you can you can have your shot here up to a certain point. You know, to limit me down to $4 is is ridiculous when they're taking even if every other better on that site is betting $4, if I'm just one of 53,000 bets that day, you know, <laughs> you don't you can you can you can fade a five hundred dollar a thousand dollar even a twenty five hundred dollar wager from from sharp action. Well, so here's here's a question for you. Like, how much? What do you think the cost to books is in terms of these sort of false positives, kicking out or limiting betters that actually aren't sharp but just went on good runs? And and does a book like a DraftKings or William Hill like even have the sort of analytical analytical capabilities to really make a a really educated assessment of whether someone is going to be a winning better long term? I think we all know the answer to that. I, I think it's clear that they definitely boot out. They they throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. You know, there's there's definitely times when they're kicking out people that aren't sharp in every sport. You know, nobody's sharp in every sport. If I'm if I'm placing a hockey wager, it's probably square money. They they need to understand that Rufus is an exception, but the average sharp uh, better. It's is, also a dog's name for the record. Yes, it is. <laughs> But the average sharp better is not able to beat every sport all the time. They just don't have the, the mental bandwidth to take on that many things at once. But wouldn't the average sharp better then know that and not bet the sports that they can't win in? Uh, you know, or would they do it to try Jeff, to disguise play and to you know, bet, like bet into big markets where they're not going to win just I, to, for, for longevity? I think that I think that I think that there's like a level of discipline that you're saying that betters have that they may not have. Correct. But we're, we're talking about sharp betters, though. People even that are sharp doing sharp even, even sharp betters, Rufus. I know you have zero leaks in your game, but uh, there are people that do. But I don't bet sports. Yeah, that your leak was when we were playing craps in Vegas a week ago. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and when yeah, I there's a reason. Your advice and, and when I piggybacked on on that, you know, second half over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, no one knew the Lakers were going to be quite as bad as they were. So I, I, I contend that that was an anomaly. So here, here's an interesting thing to think about. And this is an interesting thought exercise. And this get, goes back to this sort of Matthew Trenell who kind of scoffs at us with the idea that we believe that the pinnacle model will work. Think about this, okay? The margins are huge, hugely different, right? We, we, we will assume that, right? The full pinnacle model, the hold percentage is less than 1%. You know, the the full William Hill model will say the whole percentage is closer to four percent. Will we all will all agree that there's a pretty big disparity there? Yeah, I would guess it's higher than four percent. So what I wonder is in a regulated market, can you get the same kind of money going through your book as Pinnacle does? In other words, like Penny is able to get that much money through because you know, there's no one checking taxes. There's no one checking. There's no one doing CTRs for cash transactions greater than X. There's, you know what I'm saying? There's just all of this uh, friction that's been removed from people being able to put stuff into Penny, which allows them to be as big as they are. So the challenge is, could a regulated sports book ever get big enough, one single one where there's competition down the street to justify giving up the edge that they would need to give up to be the the full pinnacle model. I think I yes. But um Jack, I want you you want to expand on it? Yeah, I I believe it it could happen, Jeff. You know, there was actually some good points made on that panel by not just uh Matteo Monteverdi, but 
But Sharon Otterman actually made this point actually right before where they got into the whole banning sharps section. But she said that, you know, the, the European market right now is, is largely stale in terms of innovation, in terms of the product. You know, when somebody finds something innovation innovative, it just spreads across the, all the all the players in that market, all the operators. She pointed out that, you know, the, the larger market in the in the US is going to be able to foster competition. It's going to be able to allow us to come up with new ideas and and new ways of of capturing the market. Uh, and that's what's going to need to happen in order for the US market to compete with the offshore market is you're going to need to come up with a better product. And, you know, right now, sports betting, as we're, we're trying to do it right now, is not product that's better in the US than it is offshore. You're correct in terms of the friction points of, you know, CTRs and, and cash transactions. But at the same time, there's also friction points in that we're not allowing as much innovation and innovation into the market. You know, we're 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 letting it be overrun by these big companies that are paying to play. You know, the the smaller players that that could be more nimble, innovative, and it, well, innovative with their with their product just can't break into this market yet. That's what we need to get. We need to get those players in. The second part of it is we need to find a reme- remediation plan for offshore operators. I'm not saying, you know, Pinnacle's into the U.S. market, but I'm saying some of the people that work at Pinnacle, some of the brains behind it, and really probably Chris is the smarter operation at this point, but some of the brains behind that, let's allow them to get key license employee status in U.S. states. You know, that that's a huge hurdle we need to get past. The brains of the operation are still in this black market, and they need to be brought into the U.S. and allowed to shape this market and compete you with the offshore there, market. We're a long way from that happening, right? Because oh, the sure. regulatory process that I've heard is 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 arduous, right? And just <sighs> the idea that like it's not going to be hard for them to figure out that these people work for Penny or Chris, and so all of a sudden there's not going to be, they're not going to get licensed, right? Well, I mean, Bet365, there's a decent chance they might get a license in the United States, and, and they have you know extensive dealings in the Asian markets, which that's a no-no. So, I mean, I don't know much about that. So you guys would have to speak to that. My only thought is, you know, we could we could steal a page from the movie Casino where there's such a backlog right now to get regulated, uh, to get approved, that you can bring these guys in, have them kind of cross-train the other employees. And then by the time that the state licensing committee goes, hey, wait a minute, this guy can't have a license here. You go, oh, sorry, I didn't realize that. And you let him go. And meanwhile, he's already cross-trained all the employees. But that's kind of a, a tricky way to approach it. That doesn't seem realistic, and it's not no, like probably it, not. No, I mean these sort of transitional. You know, you, you get a, a temporary license while before the, you know a lot of times before they do all the investigation. So, I mean, I think uh, I see a scenario like that is actually possible. I don't think you know how business works, Rufus. <laughs> like, I mean, it just—it's it, just not—it's not ultimately like how. I mean, what what we're saying oh. is that we we need real talent to come in and run a business in this country that pushes these businesses to think differently. And that's not really going to happen if you just have one guy that comes in and trains someone for, you know, three months before they realize that he needs to get out of the country. No, I didn't mean like necessarily the training part, but I do think that there will be people that will be able to get licenses like on a temporary license while before the investigation that maybe and that and, and maybe at the end of the investigation, they don't actually get a, a license. And, you know, but I, you know, there is, I don't, you know, there's so many licensed, well, there's so many people applying, right, that that I think there is backlog. And so it's going to be hard to do all that due diligence quickly. 
there's definitely a backlog in New Jersey right now, uh, a complete backlog. You have so it many could, operators. It could work here, definitely. How, how uh, arduous is, do you know much about the licensing process? Yeah, New Jersey has always been the toughest state to be licensed in. They've they've kind of pride themselves. I mean, you know, Steve Wynn never was able to get a license in New Jersey. So they've always prided themselves in this, you know, deep background check into everyone. But that takes time and that takes effort. And the funny thing about it is you have to pay for your own background check. You have to pay for the investigation. And these investigations can take many, many months. And, you know, you're basically paying the the salaries of the, the guys that are investigating you uh, in terms of the registration fees and costs. So it's not an, it's, it's probably not an, a good gambit to take, but I think, it, I think it would probably work in, in this state right now anyway. So what else Rufus do we have for our guest before we let him go? Well, I think there's a few things. I mean, so he mentioned to me before the, the comment that Matteo Monteverde from sport radar made and this kind of dovetails a little bit into the events with Major League Baseball these past few days. But but uh, Monteverde said that that data is the new oil and sport radar is the refiner of that oil, which, you know, it's I don't know, I, I find it interesting. I, and Jack, what, what do you think about that? Yeah. So, you know, that, that comment was made at the panel and he basically said that, you know, they're refining the oil, the data. And they're giving it as fuel to the bookmakers. But the problem with that analogy is, you know, data should be free. You know, data should be available to everyone. You know, that analogy of oil refining kind of pretends that it's okay. Well, for in his defense, oil should be free also. It's a natural resource. <laughs> That's so true. Wait, That's why, true. why should data be free? Well, what, what, what right does it have to be free? Well, because it's what is, it is used by everyone on all sides of the counter to to gauge the, the market, you know, in any kind of market, you can't have certain information only available to few, you know, that's, we've, you know, that the U.S. kind of went through those growing pains and, and out of that, the SEC was born. But for, for him to kind of pretend that it's okay for data to be controlled by a select few is, is troublesome. You know, I think a better analogy is that, you know, data is oxygen, and it's, it's free to all. And, you know, if, if they, Sport Radar, wants to offer a value-added markup on air, that's fine if they can find a market for that. However, don't tell me who's allowed to breathe that air. It just seems, especially when we got to this week with what uh, Major League Baseball did in terms of you know some of the, the changes they made to their policies on how lineups are to be disseminated, Sport Radar is kind of the beneficiary of all of this. You know, Major League Baseball has a gaming partner in MGM, but they also have a data partner in Sport Radar, and Sport Radar has kind of all of the sports books going to them for the data. So, you know, Sport Radar is going to control this data now. You know, I don't know how deeply you guys wanted to go into the whole Major League Baseball situation of, of you know, what they did this week. That's up to you. No, I think we definitely want to. I mean, this this came out today, right? Today, today's Friday. Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty much. You know, Peter Gammons made a made a tweet and he basically said that there's one major league baseball manager who's up in arms that he has to give lineup data to the league first before he disseminates it in any of this normal manner, posting like, it in the clubhouse or whatever. He can't um, post it in the clubhouse first. Uh, you know, so here's the thing. Base, major league baseball has backtracked and backpedaled on this topic all day. And basically it's murkier now than it ever was before, which is which makes it bad optics on them. But it sounded like 
they're not allowed to disseminate the lineup and card information until they've at least notified Major League Baseball via email and received notification back and or 15 minutes has passed. That's what I've heard is their official policy. So this is a response to what they see as an integrity risk here for inside information, because gamblers, obviously, if, if you know that Mike Trout is sitting out, you know, that's going to have a big effect on the line. So, but, but what is the real integrity risk? I mean, if, if, is there a chance that some beat writer is going to, someone will pay a beat writer to get this information early? Or, I mean, it, it, is there really a problem that they're finding a solution to here? I mean, and what's the sort of analogy with other sports? We don't really see, you don't have, as far as I know, to the best of my knowledge, you don't have the same thing going on in the NFL or the NBA where teams have to disseminate that information, their lineups through the through the league, right? Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, they're, they're, they're attempting to solve a problem of unfair market advantage by creating an unfair market advantage that they profit from. Because what they've said is they'll take this information and they'll disseminate it to their gaming and data partners. Now, what does that mean? We don't know. You know, it, does that mean that they're going to blast it out on a server on, you know, because Major League Baseball has robust data servers. You know, the, the whole Major League Baseball advanced media department, everything in a baseball game gets blasted out in XML format. And you can scrape that data to your heart's content, build your own scoreboards. Are they going to blast that data out there for everyone? That would be great. Are they going to just blast that data to MGM and Sport Radar and give them a 15 minute heads up? That's not so good, you know, because how do I know that I'm not betting into that 15 minute window? It's not like lineups are are created by managers at the same exact time each day. That that information kind of just leaks out. You know, there's there's websites that have kind of come up with a way of cultivating that information from various sources to, you know, put out the the lineup information. But how do I know I'm not betting in that 15-minute window where, you know, MGM or who, whoever sportsbook knows this information, but I don't, and I see that they have a good price on the screen, and I go ahead and bet it. You know, I, I'm betting at a disadvantage there. You know, there there should be blue sky information to everyone. There there shouldn't be a way to kind of cloud this information so that it only gets shared to a few. But my, my the more important part is though. Where does it go from here, right? Like the NFL has injury reports, and we all know that the NFL injury report is basically because of betting. But what if the NFL says, all right, uh, we're going to only sell this to Sport Radar, and they have the exclusive rights to the injury report? Um, what if the NHL says starting goalie information is now behind a paywall? And you, you know, if you want to access starting goalie information, you need to pay this, and only sports books are allowed to pay this. Uh, right. and, you know, and the, the consumer sorry. is not. Didn't Sport Radar have somebody fired about a year ago for I think it was esports? The head of esports was betting mm -hmm. huge on esports. Like, right. there's, there's, I mean, huge conflicts of interest. Definitely, definitely. Uh, you know, they're they're basically kind of creating a black market. You know, in in the name of integrity, they're creating the possibility of a black market. Um, it's, but I mean, this shouldn't this shouldn't surprise you guys, right? I mean, like you're actually like you're up in arms about this concept that MLB is going to try to do everything they can to monetize their assets and monetize their IP. This is this is what they do. This is what sports leagues do. They are run by lawyers and the way they understand how to make money is to create some sort of, you know, asset that that they can monetize and can force people to to deal with, right? So I, I don't think this is what what I think is is so troublesome about this is that 
the 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 idea that like lineups come out at random times which they do and the idea that like you know the official lineup then gets gets hidden is is just it is it is absurd and it, it seems ridiculous and it just seems even more ridiculous that all of a sudden you're going to allow a company like sport radar to profit from it a company that if they do their research realizes that has worked quite a bit with offshore books in the past and so you know it, it's it's just this like horrid you know it, it, it like makes me want to go back to the days where where everything was illegal <laughs> and everything was fairer because it was almost illegal so it's it's interesting because like do, now do you guys believe that legalization is good for the sports better or how, how do you guys feel about that I believe it's good for the sports better. There's there's a lot of reasons for it. There's a lot of instances where we've seen regulation be able to step in and say, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to be the third party ombudsman here and I'm going to resolve this this situation. You know, sports betting has always needed that. You know, any any industry needs that. Any industry where there's a consumer and a business and they have opposite goals, there's always going to end up being a conflict where something can't be resolved amicably between them. And legalization slash regulation resolves that situation. Rufus, where do you weigh in on this? Good for the better or bad for the better? I think good for the better. I think, you know, there's, I mean, look at how many operators we have in New Jersey now. I mean, I think competition is good and it's going to, competition leads to a better product or it should, you know, this is, I, I, I'm an econ major. I don't remember much about it, but, but, you know, I think intra-economics would say this is good for the consumer. All right, moving on. Any last topics before we let Captain Jack actually go to bed? We're recording this very late on the East Coast. Well, I actually want to know what what does Sport Radar actually do? Maybe like I've never really completely understood. I mean, are they basically just a glorified middleman? Because I know they've, they've no, they provide services on top of. I mean, they they provide integrity services. They provide what are integrity st- services? Did you listen to Mateo? I did. They, they I did. found like yeah, three thousand cases, and of course they, they found they actioned cases. on three hundred of them or whatever, or a thousand cases and three hundred. I mean, you Sport know, Radar. Sport Radar I work is like LBSC. I worked at LVSC and and we got hired by the NBA and I think a few different conferences in college football to like do integrity stuff. And you know who was the person doing that? Me. I just looked through the line moves and I had a very unscientific approach, but like I was like, oh, this looks unusual. Like Yeah, that's why sport not- radar that's why sport radar's in existence, because they don't want to have to hire you again. Yeah. No, so point. they Sport Radar makes a lot of money. Bet Radar na- globally makes like 150 200 million dollars. It's a real company. It's not just a glorified middleman. No, I realize, but what are they providing besides these integrity services and and their their what is their like core competency? They they run some books. They run software that prices that actually like does the pricing of bets. So they trade. Yeah, they I do I, risk I management. They, I believe they trade in in out other countries. Do they do that in the United States at all? Uh, I think they might be doing that some, in some places, yes. Jack, do you know? I, I don't know the answer to that. They mentioned in the panel they have 90% of the New Jersey market. So I'm not sure what exact services they're providing and, and who the 10% is that's not using them. Well, I, I, th- I would think that's a data partner, right? Probably. That's not, that's not, they're not like Canby or anything. No, but not but, that I know of. Yeah, as you said, though, like data... Like what are they? What are they doing that's so special with the data? Like, and please excuse my ignorance here. I'm not trying to like trash them. I just literally don't know. 
I mean, yeah, they, I, they they build services for sports books on top of data that they get. They also resell that data to people. Their 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 business is is working with sports books to provide services to sports books that they don't do themselves. I.e., like bookmaker. They Let's are go B2B. look it up. I mean, it's not like this isn't like a. I don't understand yeah, why no. why you're having such a hard time with this. If they make 150 million dollars globally, they must provide some t- types of services to sports books, and those right. services are around you know, one, giving them the best data to price things, and then two, helping them price them. That's a lot of money made for doing that. There's a lot of sports books around the world that they, they do this with, right? It's, it, and it's a, it's a, they have a bunch of different revenue streams to do this with. Yeah, I guess they, like, they, they do reselling and distribution of like OTT video for sports books. I know, like, I think they're the officially licensed, like, global partner of like the NFL or something like that and reselling OTT um, video. Okay. Well, you've you've been you've shined some light on that for me. <laughs> I mean, they're they're a B2B company and that's kind of my point is they're not consumer facing and as a result for them to have control of the data just seems like you're cutting out one half of of the equation of, you know, a, a market of the market efficiency is you're you're basically making one half have information that the other half does not have access to. It it just doesn't seem right in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I mean, I agree with this idea that they're creating that they're. So the question then is: Sport Radar good for the sports better or bad for the sports better? And I would say bad for the sports better. I would agree. Yep. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap with Cap and Jack and Lightning. You had answers that Rufus and I didn't have, which isn't surprising because we don't have very many answers. So, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you guys all next week. Or in two weeks. Thank you. Watching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is water.